Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Creative Control with Beach Comic. Hello from Canada, home of International Pariah, Mayor Rob Ford of Toronto. My God, I, I don't know about you, yesterday I was completely riveted by the streaming city council meeting. Uh, I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I should have been doing other things. I, I should have been applying for jobs. I should have been working on some stuff, but I couldn't stop watching. Uh, just today, today he had to deny that he did cocaine in a restaurant, uh, consorted with prostitutes, um... Used, he, actually, he did not deny the fact that he may have used a racial epithet for brown people, which I find, I think everyone finds offensive. It's, it's, eh, it's, it's very dramatic. It's melodramatic. It's, it's crazy. I can't, I'm what there's a council meeting happening right now. I want to be watching it. They're talking about skating or something. An arena? I don't know. It's still somehow completely, completely compelling. Anyway, speaking of compelling things, Tim Midyet. Tim Midyet of... A Bottomless Pit, formerly of Silkworm, is on the show uh, to talk about his band and their new record. And uh, Tim's very frank. We, we got into a lot of stuff. I'm a big fan of his work, and uh, it was great to speak to him. I saw Silkworm for the first time in Vancouver, opening for Shellac in 1999. Flew to Vancouver, basically, to see Shellac and uh, got to see Silkworm. Hang out with some friends for a week. It was good. Good times. And uh, so I have this uh, long connection with him in a way that he doesn't even know about. And I, we don't even go into. But still, great interview, I think. Check it out. Tim Midyet. You'll hear a new song from Bottomless Pit before the end of the uh, show. All right, I gotta go back to watching this council meeting and figuring out what else Rob Ford has been up to. You listen to this. Oh, I forgot to mention, actually, that uh, Tim and I started out talking on the phone, and then we switched to uh, Google Hangout. So be prepared for that, I guess. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza. The pizza, personally... I like the Gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms, 
I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Tim Midyat is a man and musician currently based in Chicago, Illinois. For 18 years, he played in a beloved and prolific rock band called Silkworm. He and Andy Cohen of Silkworm formed a new quartet called Bottomless Pit in 2005, and they have released cool records sporadically ever since, including a new one called Shade Perennial, which is available now, courtesy of the Comedy Minus One imprint. Uh, Here now to discuss some of these things is Tim Midyat. Hello, Tim. How are you? Hi, Navish. I'm doing great. It's it's nice to speak with you. Uh, where in the world are you, Tim? Uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. This is where I am almost all of the time. Almost all the time. Okay. You're what, now. What do you do in Chicago, Illinois, besides playing in this band? Do you do other stuff? Uh, yeah. I ha- I own a business doing uh, web consulting with a friend of mine, and he's actually in Milwaukee, so I'm up there one or two days a week, but. Uh, the rest of the time I work at home and hang out with my family and, uh, you know, go to the grocery store, go out to eat, stuff like that. <laughs> normal, <laughs> stu- normal stuff to maintain your stability <laughs> as a human being, basically. Exactly. Try to get try to get enough sleep, a little exercise. Right, right. Now, but this company that you've started, uh, obviously your co-founder is in Milwaukee. Is that why it's based there? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we... Uh, he he holds down the fort there with our employees. We have um, four or five people working for us, and then um, you know I go up there and and uh, you know pretend like I know what I'm doing one or two days a week. <laughs> and web consulting, what now? What does that uh, exactly mean? Is it just what it sounds like? You look at people's websites and you're like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of chin rubbing and uh, you know chewing on the ends of pencils and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we, no, we actually do a lot of nitty gritty work on people's, um, ability to, you know, convert as they say, uh, in the business of trying to sell stuff on the internet, you know, people come to your website and you want to get their email address or you want them to buy something. There's a whole way to make that a, a comfortable thing for people to do. And then, it's really easy to make it a difficult thing for them to do. So we try to, you know, it's good for consumers too. You you go to the other day I went to the Metallica website because uh, I wanted to get that album they did with Lou Reed. I never bought it on vinyl, so uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know. And uh, you know, I would say Metallica website B plus, pretty easy to use. Didn't ask me too many questions. You know, <laughs> pretty smooth, pretty smooth experience. And they sold me a T-shirt. Which I did not. I did not go there to buy a T-shirt, but they very effectively sold me a T-shirt. So maybe they did a, be- a great job, actually. You know. So you know, we 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 basically grade all our 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 clients on that kind of stuff and tell them what they should do and do a lot of that work for them. 
Okay, so how how did Metallica sell you a t- you went in you went in to buy Lulu, the album by Metallica yes. and Lou Reed. You left with the record and a t shirt? Yeah, they sold me they have reprints of some of their old t shirts that uh have uh you know, that guy Pusshead. Uh-huh. He did the designs designs for some of these shirts. So I bought this they had this cool one that was like I remember it from back in the day, it was like a a skull with like a bandana on and uh and like it's on a cross, and uh, but they think it had a snake coming out of its mouth or something like that. Hmm. It's pretty cool. It's it's good. I'm looking forward to getting it. So you you're clearly a Metallica fan from back in the day. Is it is it easy to like Metallica now? Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, Metallica has made some pretty bad records, you know. Um, but I mean, I love them so much. Back, uh, like when, like Kill 'Em All and uh, and Red Lightning and Master Puppets. I mean, those records are awesome, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I, I never have ever made music like that, um, and have never wanted to make music like that. I don't like a lot of other music like that, but I thought <laughs> they were an, I thought they were an awesome band, and I love James Hetfield's guitar playing. You know, that's kind of like ninety percent of the band for me is just the rhythm guitar. So um, yeah, now. I don't know. I I just I want to cut those guys slack. You know, they were so great. Uh, and even Injustice for All is a great record. Some of the Black albums good, even though it's kind of overdone. But um, I think it all goes back to those records. And then I saw them live once in Spokane, Washington, on the Injustice for All tour, and it was amazing. Oh, okay. Like, it, it's just they filled this like, crappy basketball arena or whatever it was. It's just this tumbling. Thing and it was super awesome and I couldn't go for three days even though I had earplugs and you know it was so great um, so I, I'm it sounds stupid to say this about multi-millionaire gazillionaire rock stars but I'm kind of rooting for them you know <laughs> I see okay it's a it's a residual nostalgia or something that that you've got for yeah them. yeah and I think that they I mean I don't know I love uh there's a thing called the year and a half, a year and a half in the life of Metallica. I'm making the black album mm-hmm. and it's totally absurd and insane shit. Like, you know, Lars is supposed to be there at noon to track drums and he shows up at like 8 PM. And the first thing he does is shower, you know, shit like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's the, some kind of monster movie, which is amazing. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that someone would allow that to come out after it got filmed and they watched it, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's I've just seen like, it. I've seen it. Yeah. Oh yeah, God, what a great movie! And so I, I really admire, you know what? I admire those guys for being willing to let it all hang out because I think they know how ridiculous they are on some level, or at least I want to believe they know that. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to say. I mean, some of the, it's hard for me. I, I find them kind of insufferable personally like i just like you watch that movie and like yeah there's various scenes that are just classic scenes like the the some kind of monster movie. <laughs> and you're just like just the lifestyle death style scene alone i mean that yeah is... yeah yeah it's so amazing too that like this band has been super successful with just james Hetfield basically calling the shots like and lars they were the band back then, you know, and I mean, Cliff Burton was a huge part of those records, actually. But mm-hmm. after Cliff died, for sure, they were the band and, you know, Kirk Hammett, whatever, he's fine. Um, and Jason, you said you couldn't even hear him on those records, really. So, you know, they were it. And uh, 
it's just amazing to me that after years of doing that, all of a sudden they just decide they're going to open up the lyric writing on this record to everyone. Like these guys are somehow going to be able to magically do it, you know, and they end up with some of the most tortured, like kind of horrible <laughs> stuff. I don't know. They're fat. They're really kind of, they fascinate me. I have to admit. And I actually really like that record, uh, the Lulu record. Oh, you do. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I just heard that. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I was crushed kind of when Lou died because um, I, I don't. He meant a lot to me as a as an example, and then you know his music. I mean, I love Velvets are my band really, and uh, and then his solo stuff too. I'm, I've always been an apologist for him, no matter what. You yeah, know, yeah. I think he, I think, I think he earned his license to kill a long, long time ago. And but I actually really like that record with Metallica. I think that it will age well. I think people will. Some people who've been calling it a piece of shit, you know, since it came out, I think will regret having treated it like that later. Maybe not. I don't know. Okay. Maybe it's just me. No, no, that's <laughs> that's fair. I just, uh, to be honest, I haven't spent that much time with Lulu. I just heard bits of it and it wasn't. I mean, I kind of was too busy to really process it. So maybe I'll take your word for it and spend, uh, you know, really go into it. Because <laughs> I, I, I too, I too was uh, upset when Lou Reed passed away and. Uh, Kind of regret. Yeah. I haven't been keeping up with them as much uh, over the last uh, few years. So, uh, I was I was really kind of crushed, and it surprised me. Cause I, you know, I don't fucking know Lou Reed. I never met him or anything. But he kind of. I said to somebody else. Somebody kind of gave me my compass. Like the Velvets gave me my compass when I was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. I heard that record, the first record, when I was thirteen, and I remember when I like heard it. I remember, it's one of the like, one of two records in my life, maybe I can remember sitting down listening to for the first time, you know, they had that human impact on me. And, and I just knew like that's way, you know, it's not new wave or punk or whatever people are doing. It's that, um, cause that's pure thing. And that's not anything, you know, that doesn't belong to anyone, but the people doing it. Yeah. So, uh, that really set, I felt like that set the course for me and to have to lose someone, yeah, you can take a guy like that for granted, right? Because he's always making records and taking chances, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but you, uh, at least for me, I never really thought about, you know, him biting it for some for some reason, you know. Yeah, that's, but, that's uh, a lot of people were very shocked because I don't know. There's just certain figures that seem like they might be around forever, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, yeah. it just kind of hits you. You're right. Like, yeah, I didn't know him, but yeah, it's sometimes this is going to sound corny, but sometimes when someone makes a record, makes a bunch of like art, you feel like you might know them better than, than other people know them. You know, it's just like, you see, you feel like you kind of know them. Yeah. And I, I, and you don't feel like that guy was writing about anything other than stuff he saw or felt, you know, yeah. and Neil, Neil Young is the same way. Although his music is more kind of shot through with this sense of, uh, you know, mortality and everything. And, uh, you know, I already know what I'll feel like when Neil dies. I'll be super bummed. Right. <laughs> just like, just, just like this, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. But what, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I want to continue, but I'm curious, are, are you anywhere near a landline? You're, you're breaking up just a bit. Uh, I'm not. Okay. Uh, we could try, we could give, do you have Skype? We could do that. Do you, are you, do you have a Gmail account? I do. Do you want a Google Hangout? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Okay, I'm going to invite you to Google Hangout right now. 
Because this, okay. it's, it's okay, uh, it's okay, but it's not great, and I, I want it to be as good as it can be. So I'm gonna hang up on this, and then try to Google Hangout you. And can you get on your computer, and we'll see if that works. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank, okay. Thank, yes. Thank you. All right. In a sec. Bye. Bye. Hey, you're there. Hey, Tim. Yeah, I'm here. Can you? Okay, great. Sorry. Yeah, that's better. I don't know what was going on there. This is much better. Now we're on. Now we can see each other. Although I may not, <laughs> I may not look at you much because I'm going to look at my. I have things written down to talk to you about. Here we go. That's cool. Yeah, you don't have to look at me. Now <laughs> we were just uh, talking about. Uh, you you said there were one or two records that you remember first listening to. What was the other? You mentioned the Velvet Underground. Can you think of yeah. what the other one was? Yeah, I remember the first time I listened to. Um... The first record I ever bought with my own money was Parallel Lines, the Blondie record. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess I must have been about 10 or something like that. And I remember the first time I ever heard that. Uh, and, um, yeah, so that made a big impression on me. <laughs> I, still, I, st- I still love that record, and um, I think she's so awesome. You know, Debbie Harry's so awesome, and uh, it really uh, – you know, it made a huge impression on me at the, even at that young age. I was a little young to sort of, uh, you know, be totally clued into girls and stuff at that point. But that record helped it to some degree. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Of, like, my first memory of listening to anything was a Beatles tape my cousin had, like a Greatest Hits Beatles tape. And yeah. I still have, like, a strong memory of that feeling of, like, what the hell is this? Like, just not, you know, I was four or five years old at the time, which was... That's a good age to remember listening. My son, obsessed with the replacements right now. He's two, and I know that he's not going to remember them like five months from now. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, So totally. it's kind of kind of funny how it works. Um, there's going to be people listening uh, to us that um, may not know much about your, your band, Bottomless Pit. Can you maybe do a brief biographical summary of uh, what this band's about, where it came from? Sure, yeah. Well, Bottomless Pit has been around since um, fall of 2005. And um, it came out of the disintegration of Silkworm, which is my old band, which uh, ended because our drummer, Michael Dahlquist, was killed in a car wreck in uh, July of 2005. So, uh, you know, we were a band. Silkworm was founded um, in 1987 in Montana. And then um, a bunch of us moved out to Seattle in 1990, and that's where we met Michael. So, um the three of us that were still in the band at the end, uh, Andy Cohen, myself, and Michael, uh, have been playing together for, uh, you know, 15 years, I guess, uh, when he was killed. So, you know, that was in addition to the personal loss, which is, you know, massive. And of course that's the main thing losing your main creative thing that suddenly was a shock as well. And, um, I'm really surprised looking back on it that we got back on the horse as quickly as we did, you know, but I guess we didn't know what else to do. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was, we were born, you know, this band was born under those conditions and that really uh, has seeped into our music. And I think also, you know, seeped into who we are as people having gone through that together. Um, it, it informs what we do. I don't think the music is, uniformly bleak by any means but it's pretty uh it's kind of hard bitten i guess maybe yeah i i was gonna say like any any uh i don't want to reduce it or or categorize it but it does come across quite 
dark, but also like yeah. sardonic. Like there's a there's an there's a there's humor in it, but there's like an edge to it, which I always find intriguing. Like it's and sometimes it's hard to there's like a couple of lines on the new record about like uh trading horses, for example, and it's just like delivered yeah. in such a funny way. <laughs> but yeah. but but the actual package of the band as a whole on, on this record and other ones does seem pretty dark. And and you're saying this really is informed by how you actually got together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know. But Silkworm was always like that too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think we're just um we're realists and we don't try to make uh I mean, we write about what we know and how we feel about stuff and we're all uh you know, Andy and I are realists and, and we don't I wouldn't say we're optimists, I wouldn't say we're pessimists. I think we just try to process the world as it really is and make sense of it. Uh and the songs are really about trying to do that and they're part of the process of doing that. So, um, you know, for better or worse, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's miserable music by any means. And I'm glad you think it's sardonic or kind of funny sometimes. Cause I think, I, I think that as well, that kind of gets lost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Occasionally. Yeah. I think so. I think some people miss out on some things, but that's where, I, that's what I hear when I, when I listen to the band and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, can you maybe talk a little bit about how the songwriting actually, comes about in this band because I think some people may not know about that either. Like how, how do you actually go about writing together? Well, Andy and I write more or less separately and, and bring it into the group and then the group just bashes it around, you know, and it's a little bit different than in Silkworm and Silkworm, uh, you know, we played together for so long that um, we would just, there was very little direction most of the time and people would just figure out their own thing. And that resulted in sort of a, you know, pretty thorny sound, but it, a distinctive sound, I think, that holds up well. And there's, because people aren't really doing what they're, what, you know, the, they, they aren't really adhering to the roles that you're prescribed, you know, by virtue of being a drummer or a bass player or a guitar player. It's kind of more tangled up than that. And I think things are a little more sorted out in Bottomless Pit, but it's interesting to me that as time goes on, it gets a little more like it was in the worm, you know, it's a, it's a little more tangled up, a little more chaotic. And, um, I, I like that fine. I think that's, it's good. It's healthy. And, it, you know, that's what gives music its juice really. If, if it's not too planned out. Right. You mentioned that we've been kind of discussing a, an eight year trajectory for this band and in terms of, uh, records that are kind of connected by sounds and themes like that. But can you, can you actually step back and look at Shade Perennial in terms of what you feel might have been captured here? Because you kind of made allusions to the idea of how you and Andy write, and you write it sort of observationally. And that, yeah. kind, of, that kind of connects to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what resonated with you about Lou Reed. Um, yeah. Someone who's kind of writing about what, things that he sees, you know, and, and maybe not adding too much to i mean doing it in an artful way but when you look at shade perennial what do you what do you see this reflecting about uh your vision and and andy's and the bands well i think uh you know the first the first couple of um bottomless pit records especially i mean the first one is just all about michael that's what it's about and um it's all about the experience of losing him and who he was as a guy what he meant to us and what it meant to us to have to go through that and try to rebuild our lives uh, after that. 
Um, so that, that's really clear cut, really easy to get a grip on. And then um, the subsequent record, um, Blood Under the Bridge, was the second record album after that. And, um, you know, that's a little bit more reconciling ourselves, I think, to certain things. And then, and then also some commentary on what life is like for us nowadays as adults, you know, that um, it's, it's just kind of interesting time. I don't know. We're probably roughly the same age. I'm going to be 45 next month, but um, maybe you're not quite that old. But um, Are you basing this on the fact that you can see me now and you see I've got some salt and, pe- there's some salt and pepper yeah. up, up top? Yeah, no, I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be uh, 36 yeah, okay. next month. When yeah, you, you, I, I said that, and then I'm like, you don't look forward to <laughs> Um, it's, I'm not insulted. I've been getting this a lot lately. I, I, I talked to an, uh, an old supervisor at the job I used to have and I asked if there was any work and she was like, ah, oh, you're just too old. Basically <laughs> we're looking yeah. for a younger demographic now. And I'm like, well, you're 60. Like you can't tell me that I'm too old for the thing you're running. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah anyway. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm anyway, I'm not, I'm normally not self-conscious, but and my mom the other day told me I should dye my hair before I go in for job interviews. Oh no, I wouldn't do that. I think I, I I'm going for like a brown George Clooney thing. Yeah, no, it looks good. You look great. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're we're old. Basically, the point of what we're discussing <laughs> is we're both kind of old. Yeah. Yeah, we're both old. So you know, there's just kind of. I saw this study one time on CNN that uh, was uh, funny, where um, they. Uh, the basic gist of the study was people are at this certain elevation, you know, in general, everyone's different, but people are at this certain elevation of happiness in their 20s into their 30s. And then again, like in the 50s, 60s and on, there's another, they're st- still at that plateau of happiness, right? But in between, <laughs> like you get to be about 40 years old and it just goes, brown, and it just plummets into this valley of the 40s until you, you know, climb back up the other side of it into your 50s. And uh, it's funny because I totally get that. Like <laughs> I, I, I have a great life and everything, but, um, you know, I love my I have an awesome wife and an awesome kid and, and all that stuff. I love my band and everything. But... Um, you know, you get to this point and you're kind of too old to not care. Because when you're a kid, you don't care, you know. As long as you have food to eat, you kind of don't really care about stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. If you, you know, you don't have any responsibilities. And then you get into your – so you're too old not to care about stuff anymore, but you're too young to realize that it doesn't matter, you know. Like you get to a certain age and you realize, oh, if I'm, like, not dying of cancer and I'm not, you know, whatever, like I'm fine. You know, yeah. Uh, you appreciate just the fact that you're still around. I think after a certain point. Yeah, and, um, yeah. That's 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 actually nice to hear because I'm going through a thing right now where you know I mentioned I'm looking for work. I, I yeah. I've had this sort of sort of traumatic experience of trying to maintain something I've been building for a long time, and then now I'm kind of on my own. I'm trying to figure it out, and it's very stressful. And you get notes from your mother-in-law trying to make you feel better, but they end up making you feel a little bit worse, and you're just like. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing with myself? And it's, yeah, it's a confusing time. How old is your kid? She is nine. Nine. Okay. So you, wow. So we had, we basically, I, my, my child is two. So we kind of had kids around the same age, basically. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Do your kids, uh, does your kids, uh, you know, raising your kid, does that enter into your musical life in any way? Do you find it's informing those experiences are informing you as a, as an artist? Yeah, sure. Um, it's funny because there are certain really super cliche things to do uh, that songwriters do where 
like you get older and you write about getting older. <laughs> you know, you have a kid and you write songs about your kid. And and when you're a fan and you listen to records, you're just like, oh man, there's that song about my beautiful child, the unique, lovely creature that I brought into the world that's not like any of the other people, you know, billions of people on the planet or whatever. Yeah. But, but then you, so I try, I don't try not to do that, but I try to write, when I write about stuff like that, I try to be real specific to the point almost of being so specific that it, that it's not obviously about that. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you zone in on details and you just concentrate on the details, you can put across the feeling uh, of being in love with your kid or, or whatever without actually coming right out and saying it and making it a general thing, if that makes sense. No, like it, there, there's, a, there's a song called QED on the Blood on the Bridge record that's just about my daughter when she was like three years old, but it's so specific about specific things and I don't fill in all the details and I don't think it sounds like that kind of a song. I think you get the right feeling from it. You get the same feeling that I had when I when I was writing it, but but it's not literally about anything. You know, you couldn't read it and say, "Oh, that's what this song's about." You know what I mean? Sure, but I mean, I mean, like any song uh, th- that's done well, I suppose it's open to interpretation. You know, it's yes. uh, it's artfully crafted, and, and and people get what they want out of it. But uh, you know, when you when you have a let's just uh, fall into a cliche and say like having a kid is a life changing experience. Right. And and if you are writing about your life and things you see and do, I mean, it's inevitably going to enter into it. It's kind of up to you to decide how much you want to (laughs) reveal about that aspect of your life. And and I think that's what you're getting at a little bit. Yeah. And I'm also just wary of solipsism. Like it it is life changing, but it happens however many times how many people are born yeah. every day. Yeah. So it's like, it, it is, it is a huge deal for me. It was a huge deal for you and you had your kid. Most people don't care. You know, it's kind of like when you show people baby pictures or people show you baby pictures, you know, some babies are, are genuinely cute, but up till a certain age, they're just kind of like bags of fat. You know, they're like, <laughs> you see this picture and you're like, okay, that's a baby. Good job. But the, you know, you procreated. Yeah, but I think that having a kid uh, teaches you about yourself a little bit. Like I, I oh yeah. Like you, you, sure. you mentioned a scenario where people are showing you pictures of their kids, and before I had a kid, honestly, and I don't know, this makes me a, a terrible person, but I just did not care that much. I was like happy for them, but I was right. like, yeah, great, you kid. Now. You know, I'm liking Facebook pictures of people's kids, and I'm just like, why am I doing? Like, what happened to me? Yeah. Someone yeah, accused yeah. me of going soft the other day on Facebook because I was posting funny, you know, lovely, adorable pictures of my child. Right. And yeah. Anyway, it changes you. So that's I'm just curious if you've always had this slightly sardonic uh, edge in your music. You know, having a kid isn't all great. <laughs> like there's a lot to, uh, about it that's kind of frustrating, I think, too. Yeah. And I imagine you're you're someone who could probably tackle those two realms of like this is yeah. amazing but it's also kind of maddening yeah um i would say in general like the overwhelming kind of um uh influence of the experience of being a dad and stuff on me the music is i think that you can't have a kid i mean unless you just aren't thinking at all i think that it's motivated by some sense of hope 
for the future. Because if you really don't, if you really have a super hard-bitten take on life, like you're not going to bring another human being into the world, you sure. know, you're not going to have that impulse, I don't think. And so, you know, and certainly once you have a child, you develop this sense of, you know, there's a sense of possibility there with any uh, uh, kid because you're watching them grow and learn how to do stuff and you think about what they're going to be like when they get older and are they going to do this or that. How will they? How will they do well? In what respects will they not do well? So, yeah. So that I think it does soften you if you're kind of if you have a more kind of hard bitten take on things to begin with. You know, it yeah. has to, yeah. or else you're going to be miserable <laughs> and make your kid miserable, probably. Yeah. No. It's it's I, I it's a hard thing to explain to people because you're right. It's so conventional in a sense like everyone does this but you know it's i mean when you talk about the fact that having a child is potentially among other things an optimistic gesture does it stand to reason maybe that in your expression in the bottomless pit you are in in actuality in spite of what we've been saying earlier about the edge to the music are you an optimistic songwriter um i don't think i have a stance as a songwriter i think it just comes out the way it comes out i don't I guess. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This sounds pretentious to say this, but I really think of our music as... as being like blues music in that it's not uplifting in terms of the subject matter and stuff, but I don't think you come away from it with this feeling of uh, being bummed out or whatever, you know, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's rejuvenating music, at least for me it is. And uh, I think that there is a sense of um, accomplishment, you know, uh, when when you that's a weird word to use, but <laughs> I got through the record, you know. But uh, I think there's a I think that, I think there's a, it has a restorative quality to it. I think. Yeah, you um, you would describe it potentially again at the risk of pretentious sounding pretentious. There's an inspirational tone to it. I I would like I would like people to come away from it with that, and really I try to zone in on the essential like feeling at the core of any of these experiences, like being a dad or losing Michael or any of that, I try to really get at what did that feel like and then make the music, you know, signify in that way. And then the words just have to guide it a little bit. They don't have to tell a story for me. Um, They don't have to explain everything. They just have to 
kind of guide the experience of the song, you know. And if in the end you kind of have a, a window into what it's like to feel that way, it doesn't really matter what the exact inspiration is for it. You know yeah. What I mean? You, we were talking earlier about how the inception of Bottomless Pit and, and the earliest records, perhaps even up till now, are really informed by the loss of Michael. Um, you know, there's such a thing as a mourning period. Do you, do you foresee a time when um, the band won't be so invested in, in that? Uh, uh, we'll, we'll maybe move past the mourning and, and, and honor him in other ways? Like, do you see that happening? Yeah, that's a good question. Not really. <laughs> um, and I can say that with some confidence because um, I've told this story a few times um, before, but uh, I'll tell it again. I'll try to make it brief. Last fall, I saw Neil Young and New Order like a couple weeks apart, and uh, two of my favorites and stuff. And uh, but you know, both those, both those, uh, both Neil and and New Order, you know, they've had to deal with their fair share of death and destruction along the way. And, you know, Neil, it was a very emotional experience watching plays, an old man. Don't know if I'm going to get to see him do that again uh, in that context. But, you know, the last thing he did was this 12-minute long version of Tonight's Night, super stretched out, super heavy and great. And that's how he dealt with that constant presence in his music. And New Order, similarly, very bittersweet experience to watch him play. It was great. And my wife asked me at a certain point during the show, like, how do you think they deal with things? You know, the fact that they were born out of, um, you know, a death. I mean, that's how they how they came about. So they, they go away for their arm. I'm like, I don't know. Do you think they ever get over it? And I'm like, I don't know. They go away. They come back. Three Joy Division songs wow. for the encore. Huge, huge video screen of this old Joy Division video for Ceremony with just shots of Ian Curtis interspersed with it right in your face, and then at the end, it just says on the screen, Joy Division, or Forever Joy Division, huge letters. And uh, I was like, oh, I guess that's how you deal with it. <laughs> you know, you don't. You accept it as part of your your birthright. You know, that's, that's what you were born into, and that's where you're going to be kind of forever. And uh, I was like, yeah, that feels about right, man. That's, I get that. You know, it's been 30 years for them. Or uh, more, yeah. longer, yeah. And they're still there, you know. I don't think they'll ever get out of that spot, and they probably don't want to get out of it. And I, I know how they feel. Right. Okay. No, that's fair. Speaking of your your past, I recently chatted with Joel R.L. Phelps, and I was really yeah. fascinated by his personal struggle, which I, I actually had I didn't know much about. Um, I haven't posted the Joel interview yet, but. In any case, uh, we got into his struggle with substance abuse, mental illness, um, and you played with him, Tim, in Silkworm. What was it like playing with him in Silkworm uh, at that time? Because he left fairly early on. I mean, fairly early on. In the, well, he left, what, seven years into the band's existence? <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't that early, but uh, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about playing with him? Well, I learned more from Joel than from any other musician I've played with including Andy, um, and Andy would probably say the same thing about him. He's a total natural, super talented, great singer, great, awesome guitar player. Um, and being in a band with him was, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Um, just 
because he gave me so much that I could steal and make my own, you know, <laughs> but, uh, if nothing else, but, and I love him. I think he's an awesome guy. Uh, playing with him was, you know, sometimes he was up and it was great. And sometimes he was in the middle and it was great. And sometimes he was down and it could be a bummer. Um, to be fair, uh, we were living a pretty gritty lifestyle at the time. You know, um, we, when we were in the heart of our, touring stuff, you know, it's not like we were making a lot of money that we could just come home and live on when we were done. You'd have to, you'd be out on the road for six or eight weeks and come home and have to scrape together rent, uh, somehow, you know, to keep your apartment. And Andy didn't have an apartment for a long time. He just crashed on, uh, on people's couches and stuff. So yeah. it was, it was harsh and it's not for everybody. And, and whatever issues Joel had, um, I can't say that it was crazy of him to not be able to do that or not want to do that after a certain point. So um, it was awesome to be in a band with him and um, in general. You know, there were real hard times, and certainly at the end it got real painful, but it was painful for him too, you know. Um, and like I said, to not be able to or want on a certain level to go through that and keep doing it is actually pretty sane. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. A, it's yeah. a reasonable thing. Now, so, and I know, I know he's been, you know, we've, I've talked to him a lot over the years about, not as much as I wanted to sometimes, but quite a bit about his stuff that he's been going through. And, uh, he's a fucking fighter, you know, he's fought really hard to, uh, be where he is and to stay around and be vital as a human being. And, uh, I've just done whatever I can to, you know, help him maintain some perspective on things, you know. Yeah. There's a documentary that was released uh, not too long ago about Silkworm uh, called Couldn't You Wait? Yeah. And, and, and he's not featured in it. Um, no. And uh, how, how, how did you feel about that? I mean, this is the story of the band. He was integral to the band. Was that hard for you to, yeah. to have him not be involved? Well, I wish he, I wish he was in it, I guess, on a certain level, but given the place he was in at the time the movie was being made, um, it's kind of, I wish he was in it for selfish reasons, but it's kind of almost fitting in a way that he's not in it just because he wasn't available in, in a certain way, you know, during that time as a, as a person, he couldn't, he, he couldn't really function on a certain level during that time. So, um, in a way his absence, uh, his absence kind of accurately reflects his position in, in in terms of his relationship to people, you know, during the time the movie was being made at least. And I hope that people get the full, you know, impact of what a, what an influence he was on us and how much he shaped what that band certainly, certainly shaped it extensively when he was in it and even after that, you know, it wouldn't have been the same kind of thing if he hadn't have been such an integral part of it from the beginning. Right. So I don't, I don't know if that comes through for sure or not. I don't really have the perspective on that, but I would hope it did. How do you feel about the movie uh, generally? I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, Seth Pomeroy, the guy who made it asked us if he could do it, uh, maybe six or eight months before Michael got killed. So he was on the tip, you know, before Michael died. And then I think when that happened, he really felt like he had to do it on a certain level. And 
I said, sure, go for it. And I just thought, there's no, no way, you know, there's no footage. Uh, you know, we were playing like no place most of the time and there's just no way that there'll be more than about half an hour of footage <laughs> that he could use for the thing. And then he put out the call and somehow he got all this stuff. I don't even know where it came from. And, uh, and he, you know, he had a trailer within a year after, uh, Michael died and the trailer was great. Three years later or four years later, he's, he showed me a first cut and I thought it was great. And then he's like, I'm going to redo the whole thing. And then it was another three years, you know, before he, he finished it. Huh. And, and the final product I think is awesome. I think it really captures, well, I know for a fact it captures what it was like to be in our band. And I think it captures that, the zeitgeist of that time, you know, what it was like to be a band of our kind during that time. Whether it was a band literally like us on our level, whether it was bands that didn't do as well as we did, whether it was, you know, Pavement or somebody like that who did real well. Um, I think it's a really good snapshot at, at what it was like to come of age during that time, make, make music during that period. So I think it's awesome. So yeah, this is kind of a broad question, but it strikes me as you're talking about sort of Silkworm at the time and what they stood for and, and maybe where they fit into things. Um, what about Bottomless Pit? What about this sort of modern <laughs> contemporary age of underground music, if you will, or, or whatever this mm-hmm. is? Like, uh, how do you? I assume at this point you're not dwelling much on all the kind of external factors that are, are involved in having a band, but um, do you think much about your audience or, or, or who you're reaching with uh, your music? No, I never have. Um, you know, Andy and I and Joel started doing this in Montana in the early 80s. And talk about DIY. I mean, I don't even know if we had the term DIY back then. But you had to, like, uh, do literally everything. You know, you had to rent the PA, uh, which was usually some piece of crap. And then you had to find this place to do the show. You had to run the door and bounce people if they sucked. You know, you had to do everything and clean up afterwards. So um, it was real grassroots stuff. And you learn really early to have a very thick skin and be truly insular about it. So I never thought at all about um, who was listening much at a certain point until until we had a website. Michael made the website and there was a message board and people started flocking to the message board. And I was like, oh, these people are cool, you know, yeah. <laughs> I could pay attention to them, you know, and you can be selective. You don't have to listen to people who don't like what you're doing. You can ignore them <laughs> and just concentrate on the ones who are really into it. So, um, once I realized I could be totally one-sided about it like that, um, then, you know, I did start allowing myself to kind of enjoy the company of some of these folks. I'm glad I was able to do that, but I never, yeah, I don't think about it which is good, I think, because, I don't know, we're kind of outside things, I think. That's my feeling is we're outside even the, not forget about the mainstream, you know, even the sort of, uh, what, what, what do you call a, uh, a tributary, <laughs> whatever, tributary off the, whatever tributary off the mainstream feeds, you know, bands the equivalent of us. We're not even on that. You know, we're yeah. off on some some little trickle of our own. So, 
Well, I guess you, you, it's good to be self-aware to kind of come to terms with that. You know, I mean, what your, the scope of your, your endeavor is, you know, and, and yeah, and it sounds like you're kind of grounded about that. Yeah. And like I said, we never really thought about it. We just do it and it makes us happy and it's feel good to do it. So that's why we do it. And, um, it's funny, we did a benefit a little while ago for this museum in Chicago that specializes in outsider art, and we got up on stage, and it was all these people for this art gallery, and they didn't know anything about us, so I was sort of telling them what our deal was, and as I was telling them, I realized, oh, we're outsider artists. <laughs> I was like, you know, I just realized we're, we're kind of, yeah, that's us. <laughs> I'm like, I guess outsider artists don't know they're outsider artists. No, they, they don't think about it. They're just yeah. And this woman was nodding her head vigorously, and then we started to play, and she turned around and left immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you're you were outside even for other outsider artists. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Speaking of message boards and interacting with people, uh, you are an active member of the electrical audio uh, community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what do you make of that? Uh, why why is that uh, something you partake in? Um. It's fun, and um, people have opinions, you know, strong opinions that are, as often as not, you know, pretty well reasoned. <laughs> um, there's, you know, there's direct on there like anything else, but uh, I don't know, it's fun, and I started out looking at it because, you know, I'm friends with Steve, and it, it's his studio, Steve Albini's studio, Electrical Audio, that's the main, uh, you know, shell for it the main impetus for it, I should say. Um, So, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, it's enjoyable. I don't have as much time to think around with it as I used to, but, you know, it's fun to blab with people about, uh, about things that, that you're, you're both interested in. And, uh, it's a, you know, community of like-minded people who who are able to do a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah. Are you on, do you, do you, do you, uh, find yourself on other message boards or is that your primary outlet for this? kind? No, no, that's the other thing too, is that like, I don't do that kind of thing in general. So it's my one outlet for that. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool. It's good. Plus it keeps, it keeps me writing. I like to write and I don't have, I have a blog, but I don't update it very often. And it keeps that kind of, uh, keeps the juices flowing in that regard. So there is totally a selfish reason for the, Right. doing it. I'm sure of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, you also uh, are, are slightly, I don't want to say slightly famous. That sounds derogatory. But you oh, are... at best, slightly. <laughs> well, you're renowned for uh, a rub. Oh, yes. My famous rub. You have a famous rub. <laughs> this is a beef rub. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a... It's a rub. It's a just a spice blend. Uh, you might say if you want to broaden it to use it on like, uh, think of it as something like Mrs. Dash that you can put on popcorn and crap like that. <laughs> but um, which I do. But um, yeah, I, I made it to go on beef, mostly beef and game meat, and it's awesome. You will not find anything better for beef. And I don't. I'm not a huge braggart. I don't think. Wait despite a- my despite my inflated opinion of myself. <laughs> But um, it's really great, and uh, it's good on pork, if you, especially if you put a tiny bit of sugar in it. And it's good on chicken. It's just it's a it's a good thing. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Steve Albini earlier. He's also something of a, a food aficionado, and uh, I think it's all kind of, from my understanding, it's fairly self-taught. He just experimented with stuff and. Yeah. Uh, is that the same case for you? Did you just are you? I, is this a derogatory term? Foodie? Are you a foodie? 
Um, I wouldn't say it's derogatory. I don't like it. We usually, Steve and I have decided we like the term eater. Eater, okay. Yeah, so you're an eater. <laughs> I'm an eater, yeah. Because, um, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. But uh, it's, it's a diminutive. I think that's part of it. Right? Foodie is diminutive, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So who wants to be diminutive? If you don't have to be eater, yeah. sounds strong like T Rex or something. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm an eater, but um, I've eaten my whole life basically, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I really appreciated food until, well, partly from touring so much in the '90s and especially going to Italy. That's it was a big eye opener for me, and uh, then I got really into grilling and barbecuing, and then it was kind of all over at that point. Um, but Steve, Steve is a, Steve is a rather good cook, and he is totally self-taught, and uh, as far as I know, and um, he he's a I mean he's a weird guy in a lot of respects, uh, <laughs> weird, weird most, mostly mostly because of his capabilities, but he he has this odd ability to just remember whatever he reads. I don't I don't think he has a photographic memory literally, but you know he'll read about how to do some crazy cooking thing, and he'll just remember it. And you can just go do it the next time he's in the kitchen and think, oh, I should do that one thing that that Jacques Lafon did that one time on his show, and he'll just do it. Whereas, you know, most people, certainly, I'm not one of these people, um, you know, most people could never do that. So, I, yeah. I, I do know that Steve, uh, I'm sure Steve doesn't listen to the show, so I'll just say that, yeah, I, I'm some somewhat uh, awestruck by his abilities on, on the same level that you're discussing. Like, I'm just like, yeah. he seems to... He was recently on the show, and I kind of suggested that he might be supernaturally prescient. Like he seems to anticipate things in a way that, like when he when he says stuff that's going to happen, mm-hmm. it seems to happen, and I find that kind of creepy. But yeah. I, I think it might be a, a hyper intelligence that I just can't comprehend. <laughs> well, he's he's pretty smart. He's a very smart guy, and uh, uh, the the dangerous thing about Steve is that um, even if he doesn't know anything about whatever it is you're asking about he can talk about it like he does <laughs> no so you have to be a little careful sometimes that when he's saying oh no you could totally blah 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 and it's plumbing or something like that you know you might want to you might want to double check <laughs> yeah there's that aspect too where like anything i throw at him he'll he can speak to instantly and and yeah. uh yeah it's seemingly with expert with seeming expertise but Maybe yeah. I just don't question it enough. Anyway, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd be a great pundit. Unfortunately, yeah. he, he doesn't. I think he's too, you know, honorable as a person to go into that line of work. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, what's next for Bottomless Pit? Um, you, you've obviously, I kind of mentioned this. You've been taking uh, your time a little bit, uh, releasing records on some level. Um, yeah. Have, have you already kind of? Plotted a next move after Shade Perennial, or because uh, I know you have a few tour dates coming up in November. But what, what's going on beyond that? Well, um, it took us a long time. We wanted to get this music down completely before we recorded it, so it took us a long time to get there. It only took us a day and a half to track the record, really, but it took us three years to get <laughs> to get everything worked out. So I don't know if we'll be able to stomach doing that again, but um, though it worked out well. We're going to play some shows in the Midwest, U.S. this fall, and we're going to go to the West Coast um, end of February and beginning of March and play out there. And then ideally we'll be 
we'll hit some other parts of the country. Ideally, we'll play it out in the East Coast, you know, late spring or something like that. But, yeah, it's kind of wide open after this West Coast thing. I don't really – you never really know more than about six months out what the game plan is, you know. So uh, that's, about, that's about as far out as we dare to plan at this point. But you're feeling pretty good about the way the band's operating. I do, yeah. I mean, like Andy and I were talking about it the other day, and you said something to the effect of, you know, I'm kind of actually continually surprised that the music turns out <laughs> to be good. Like, you'd think you'd get burned out at some point, but I guess we uh, we go so slow, you know, and one, one byproduct of not uh, being, not having a high profile is that the, the expectations are minimal, you know. <laughs> so you can, our fans have high expectations, but they're willing to wait. So, you know, there's no, the impetus is on us to act whenever we decide we want to do it. And uh, I think that's good in terms of keeping our batting average up. Yeah, no, it's healthy. And uh, it's nice to hear you guys in that. As I say, it's good to be self-aware about that and and, uh, and accept uh, your reality, I suppose, for what it is. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting with rock music because there's always this overlay of that, that the commercial aspect of it means something somehow and it's weird i guess it's because it came out of you know djs playing records and kids going crazy and going to the woolworths and buying buying this the 45 or whatever you know like it came out of this commercial transaction and probably all music is like that really it's certainly jazz and classical art if you go back far enough but they've kind of become divorced from that you know what i mean so there's more of this there's a patronage system now and whether something's popular or not doesn't seem to factor into things as much and rock music may or may not end up there eventually but uh you know for me it's always been divorced the music's always been divorced from whatever commercial potential it has and that goes for stuff i I listen to and certainly for the music that we make you know no but i mean part of this is just trying to figure out is this my livelihood or is this something i do for fun or or whatever like for joy yeah Um, yeah it's a weird nether region it's not it's not golf, you know. It's not. I don't. I don't just go to the go to the music room and do it for a while and come back and forget about it. It's an all. It's it's always there. Yeah. So it's more than a hobby. I don't really know what to call it. Right. It's all consuming, but you've obviously you've got a business and you've got other things <laughs> to do, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it's uh, going for a lot of us nowadays. It's uh, totally the way it is. All right. Well. I want to let people know that the new Bottomless Pit record is called Shade Perennial. It's out now, courtesy of Comedy Minus One. And for more information about uh, the record and Bottomless Pit's upcoming tour dates, please visit bottomlesspit.us. Uh, Tim, before we go, is it possible for us to hear a song from uh, from the new record? Absolutely. That would be terrific. Now, can you do me the uh, solid of choosing the song? Oh, I think the first track on the record is pretty representative uh, of it, and um, that song um, is uh, called Fleece. Fleece. F L E E C E. Fleece. Yes. Now, why why do you call why why is the song called Fleece? Can you tell us anything about this? Um, I like I like the word. Um, I like the fact that it has the song's kind of about trying to escape, not being able to escape, um, and it. It's about something specific, but I don't really want to get into that. It's about it's about wanting to keep driving <laughs> okay. when you when you should take an exit, uh, and um, so it has flea in it. And there's also this uh, the the legend of the golden fleece from uh, I think it's Greek mythology, 
you know, this kind of questing thing of, of trying to find something that is, uh, you're, you're not even quite sure it exists. So there's all that, all that stuff is wrapped up in there somewhere. All right, I appreciate the insight. This is Fleece by the Bottomless Pit. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time, and uh, it was great to speak with you. Right on. Thanks a lot, Fish.
Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.